Good morning. What a great privilege it is to come before God and worship as brothers and sisters in Christ. God bestows upon us so many blessings every day. It's amazing. Glad we're glad to see each one of you here today. But do take a glance around and notice some of the people we have missing. Some we might know where they are and some we don't. I know Ben had mentioned that he was going to be out of town today. So uh, Always appreciate that when brethren let brethren know when they're going to be gone or even if they're sick, they're sick and not going to be here. And you do know that's biblical. Rather than us have to call everyone to find out where they're at, they should be calling us and letting us know. I don't have time to preach that sermon this morning, but uh, I can preach it for you sometime this morning. Anyway, uh, it's great to be a part of God's family and being able to uh, have the blessings that can only be found in Christ. And Jesus Christ, I mean, I love to talk about heaven, but you really couldn't even talk about heaven if you didn't have Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ, that's kind of where this passage has really been going towards as we've been in the uh, book of Colossians. And um, you see, he warned us in the first part of chapter 2, don't let unprincipled men, I'm going to paraphrase, lead you away by things that sound good but aren't the truth. And don't let people make you believe that's what God would have you to do when God didn't say that's what he would have you to do. And we have to hold on to that and can never let go of that. I think it's so important that when you get to verse 9 where we're going to pick up this morning, for in Him, in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That is amazing. You do understand that verse 9 can be stated about one being and one being only. I mean, He's all God. At the same time, he's all man. It's all in bodily form in this man. All the deity of God dwells in him, all his divine nature. Even if you look back in Colossians 1, he's already hit on this a little bit in verse 19 when he says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all fullness to dwell in him. The Father, before the foundation of the earth, already planned on Jesus coming here and being that sacrifice of sin and being that man who lived and didn't give in to temptation, of being that one who was the perfect offering, the perfect sin sacrifice to die and then be resurrected to ascend into heaven and one day to return to retrieve all the faithful. How important that is that we understand who he is. Um, a couple of things I think about that when it says all the fullness of him dwells in him in bodily form. Turn with me over to uh, John chapter 1. John chapter 1, another passage that makes it real clear that he's all God and he's all man. It's kind of hard to make fit together in my mind sometimes. But in verse 1 of John 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, several things said about whatever this Word is. We don't really figure that out in verse 1, but we'll figure it out in the context. Well, it was in the beginning. 
So before day one or at day one, the word already was. Okay? Well, I thought only God already was. That's true. The word already was. And the word, he was with some company. He was with God. And then we see he says something that's a little mind-boggling. The word was God. So not only he's with God, he is God. Well, that's kind of, now how can you be with it and it? Well, you could say that I was with a man in the room and I was a man in the room. Is that correct? Oh, now when we look at this word, so how do I know who this is? Well, he makes it pretty plain. I'm not going to read the whole context, but go right to verse 14 of John 1. And the word became flesh, huh, part of God, some God, something that's God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, the glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Is there any question who verse 14 is talking about? There's no question about who verse 14 is talking about. It's all Jesus. Jesus became flesh and dwelled among us and was that fulfillment of that prophecy and that sacrifice. So Jesus was with God the Father in the beginning. Now, if we had time, we'd read through the whole context and see that Jesus appears to be the active agent, the active part of God that created all things. Wow, I wish we had time to look at this whole thing. But that's important from the beginning. Look at another one. This time, go to 1 John, and we'll just go to one verse, unless I get carried away. 1 John 1 and verse 1, because it's hard for me just to read verse 1 without reading at least through verse 4. What was from the beginning, what was from the, what was before day one? God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. That's it. Nothing else. The devil wasn't there. The devil's a created being. He had to be something in, the, in those six days of creation. No, you have the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, you have God. So what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Let me read on here a little bit. And the life was manifest, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, what we have seen. He keeps talking like it's something they've seen. Well, I can take you to passage after passage. It says, man can't see God, and no man has seen God, except that you've seen God in the flesh when you've seen Jesus. Because Jesus says, when you've seen me, you've seen. Now, that's not literal. But he's trying to get us to see something. Gee, the only way I can really comprehend much of anything about God is by comprehending things about Jesus, and he came here and lived here so I could. So it becomes so important when you get to Colossians chapter 2. He deals with a lot, but in verse 9, I think he makes a transitional statement. Now, let me tell you what. You don't have Jesus. So how important that is to see that he's been from the beginning, he was even before the beginning, and he still is, 
And he's the one that came in the flesh and dwelt among us. He was here in bodily form. Look what he says about him in verse 10, though, of Colossians 2. And in him, Jesus, you have been made complete. Some translations might even read made perfect, which we use the word perfect. And he is the head over all rule and authority. Been made complete. What if you had something that's incomplete? Well, then I don't have the total. Something is missing. Once you think about it, over in Romans 6 and verse 23, it says the wage is the cost of your sin. And 3.23 said, you're guilty, you sin. So when I look at it on a personal level, it says the cost of your sin, Kendall, is you deserve the death sentence. You deserve to die. And he's not talking even about physically. He's talking about spiritually. Whew. So I became incomplete. When I sin, a part of me is gone now. A part of me is missing. So, so how do I become complete before God? Well, you think about uh, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 23. I like how it says it here, but it's all-encompassing. You've been bought with a price. Well, when you sin, who owns you now? The devil. Unless you get bought back from him, he still owns you. And if he owns you, you're going to spend eternity where he spends eternity, the place that was made for him. Hell. So you've been bought with a price. You've been bought and paid for either way it goes. You can even accept the payment that buys you back from Satan and condemnation, but now you need to know, I mean, it's a fact either way it goes, you're owned. That means... You know, I don't get up on Sunday to decide whether or not I'm going to Bible class and church service. I made that decision really, and I didn't even know I really made that decision, but I pretty much made that decision the day I obeyed the gospel. I don't have to make it every week. I don't even have to think about it. I don't have to think, well, if I'm going on vacation, am I going to church? If, I'm not, if I can't go to church service, I'm not going on vacation now. I'm not doing it. If I can't go to Wednesday night Bible, I'm not going on vacation now. Now, it could be that I get there and they got a Tuesday Bible class. Okay, I don't care what day of the week it's on. But I'm not going to be out there. You know, sometimes we preach that real big at our home congregation, but then we go on a trip and we leave God out a part of it. Or we play what everyone else plays. Well, we'll make it Sunday morning worship. You do that once, ain't no difference than if you do it every week, is it? I've made that analogy before. Am I unfaithful to Tammy if I cheat on her once or if I cheat on her every week? I'm unfaithful the first time. Well, you're unfaithful to God the first time. And unless you confess that sin and repent, you'll go to the grave with it. So it's big. I can't get people to understand that. So, so we look and he says we've got to remember who he is. We've been bought with a price. And I think it's also interesting here in verse 10 He's the head over all rule and authority. Who's the boss? Who, who's in charge of this country? Joe Biden. He happens to be the president. The Congress. House of Representatives. The Supreme Court. Wrong, 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 and wrong. i tell you who's the head because I just read it. He's the head. 
Well, if I'm going to say he's the head of the country, how about in your house, Kendall, who's the head? I'm the head. No. Ultimately, Jesus is the head. Now, he spends a lot of scripture, whether you realize or not, making that point. Look back in chapter 1, Colossians 1.18. Listen to this. And he, Jesus, is also the head of the body, the church. So it isn't just rulers and authorities, the church. Who's the head? Not the preacher. Not a group of elders. Not a group of men. Not you and not me. He's the head. He's in charge. He has all authority. Now, he might instruct us some things very specific, and he might, even within the specific, he might give some general things that gives us liberty. I know, and I don't have time to cover this today, uh, that we're to meet together on the first day of every week and accomplish five acts for Christ. What time on the first day of the week? He leaves that up to us. That's local congregations, figure out what's best for that congregation. Not what's best for an individual, what's best for the whole. And growing up in a big family, I found out that what's best for the whole, very seldom do I get my way. My mom and dad didn't always say, well, Kendall, this is what everyone else says, but we'll do what you want to do. I never heard those words say that. Okay, this is what we're going to do. And my mom and dad made that decision thinking what's best for everyone. Okay. Well, the Lord's way better at that than I, than I am or you are or our parents were. And so, but, but still, even if we don't like it, what he says goes. And while we're thinking about that point, go with me back to Ephesians 1. He makes kind of the same statement in Ephesians 1 and verse 22. And he, God, the Father, put all things in subjection under his, Jesus Christ's feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church. So there is no, I mean, just with Colossians 1.22 and, excuse me, Ephesians 1.22 and Colossians uh, 1.18, there is no room for disagreement with who's the head of the church biblically. I've listened to religious organizations say, well, this, is, this person or these group of people are the head of the church. Well, you got a problem. That's not biblical. And this is what this passage says. I'm still saying, that's what the Bible says. Now, has he got rules of authority working underneath that? Yes, but it's all still answerable to him. And so we have to understand he's the head of all things. Uh, another one I want to mention on that is maybe Matthew 28, verse 18, before he gives a great commission. You guys remember what he says there? He has been, he has authority in heaven, all authority in heaven and on earth. And that's why we're to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teach them all that I command you. And lo, I will be with always, even until the end of the age. Amen. He has all authority. All authority. I tell people. I don't know who has authority anywhere else, but Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And since those are the only two places I really have any desire to be a part of, I don't care about anywhere else. Any place I want to be, Jesus is in charge of. 
So now this becomes important. Now one reason he was given this authority, because he came as God in the flesh. He paid the price. And I, I think about how it is that he became the created. The creator became the created. We looked at another passage, uh, not even necessarily with this, but uh, the points made in it, and it becomes important. Look with me over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, the very beginning of that um, chapter there. That's not what I want. Let's go over to Philippians. I like Philippians better. I, I was thinking Ephesians because we're in Ephesians. Philippians 2. Listen to this. Verse 5. Having this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, wouldn't that fix up a lot of our problems if we could just keep the Lord's attitude our attitude? I always get in trouble when it becomes my attitude. And my attitude's typically selfish, and his attitude is always selfless. That's the context. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's hard to put your wrap our minds about something that's inanimate, that doesn't, not, doesn't exist on a physical form. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and made in the likeness of man. So the one who created man says, I tell you what, I'm going to become like one of my creators. Think how big a step that is down. I just asked Hunter in class, in one of his classes last year, one of the things they made was a little shelf. I said, so Hunter, did you do a, did you make the best shelf of the class? And was that? He said, no. You know, I said, well, you should have, because now you're going to become the shelf. Be terrible to become a shelf. It'd be terrible to become a lousy shelf. Hey, you think about that. You think, you can't do that. No, Jesus became man. It's a step below that. I want you to think about how big that is. You became the created. Think how humbling. That is, so that he might be able to save the rest of those who were created in the likeness of God. And then I believe he gets in one of the strongest points here in Colossians 2 when he's going to go back to the Jews and circumcision, which that whole law of circumcision happened under Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, right after the land promise. You have my permission to use Genesis 17 as your bedtime story before you fall off to sleep at night. And it will mention that land promise, and it will mention circumcision. And so from that day forward, if you were a part of the Jewish nation that was acceptable to God, and you were male on the eighth day, you were circumcised. That was a mark. And if you weren't circumcised, you were not one of God's children. And so that was seen. Well, there is something today that is the mark, just like circumcision, but it's not circumcision. Well, it's not physical circumcision. Let's read a couple of verses before we uh, cross-reference it to a few other things. Uh, here in Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12, For in him you were also circumcised. All the Jews are saying, yeah, we, we got him to swallow it now. Uh-oh. With a circumcision made without hands. What? In the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So this isn't Abraham's circumcision back in Genesis 17. 
Here it is, having been buried with him in baptism. The new circumcision is baptism. Did you hear me? The new, Just like under the old law, you must be circumcised to be one of God's children. In the new law, you must be baptized to be one of God's children. It's equated to the mark of God's covenant children. in which you were also raised up with him. Oh, we'll read another passage that uses the same analogy. Through faith in the working of God, that's a powerful statement, in the working of God who raised him from the dead. I don't know that I'm going to get into that much, so i got to talk about the working of God real quick. I talk to people, religious people, who are, know the Bible pretty well, and they tell me they're Christians. And even some of them have been baptized, but they were. some of the people I talked to said they were saved, and then months later they were baptized. And I said, well, the Bible teaches you that your sins are removed in baptism. They're forgiven in baptism. They're washed away in baptism. That you become saved in baptism. I can write a verse off for every point I just made. And they said, well, then you believe you're saved by works. I say, indeed we are. Well, I don't believe you're saved by works. I said, I don't believe you're saved by works alone. But listen, and a lot of times I turn to this passage. Listen to this work we're saved by. The working of God. In baptism, I tell you who's doing the most work God is. You think about it. All I ever, the day I was baptized, I still recall it. I can tell you a lot of things about that day. And you know what work I did? First, I had to answer a question. So it was... That's a lot of work for me. Make sure I give the right answer. No, they said, do you believe Jesus Christ, Son of God? And I said, yes, I do. And then the next work I did was hold my breath. And then someone else started working. They put me under the water, and they pulled me up out of the water. So all I did was answer a question to hold my That's the completion of the physical work I did. Boy, I was working hard, wasn't I? Man, give me that job. I can take that job. But um, I want you to think what all God did. That's what this whole context is about. You take God out of that scenario and you just have a donkey with no benefits of anything spiritual or eternal. So you think about this and we look and we study this and we see this circumcision made without hands that aren't, isn't physical circumcision isn't the cutting off of a piece of the flesh. It's really the removal of the old man of sin putting him to death, the removal of sin, and it's all done in the new circumcision, which is baptism. Matter of fact, since this talks about being buried and raised, turn over to a passage we quote a lot of times, but I'll take time to slow and look at it. Romans chapter 6. Verse 3 and 4, or do you not know? So this is something he believes they know, or he wouldn't have asked this way. Do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ, you're baptized into water, you're baptized into water, but you're baptized into Christ. You know how you get into Christ? You're baptized in. You don't believe your way into Christ. You don't speak in tongues into Christ. You don't do the hokey pokey into Christ. You are baptized into Jesus because he says, been baptized into Jesus Christ, have been baptized to his death. That makes sense. So we're going to 
put you under, immerse, okay, just like Jesus was buried. And then what's he go on to say? Well, he says, therefore, that is since you've been buried into Christ, therefore, having been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, did Jesus really, did the Father really raise Jesus from the dead? Oh man, if you, I can preach that sermon right now and we'll be here a while. They tried everything to make sure that didn't happen. Man, he put a Roman guard out there. I want you to know the only way to get past that Roman God is guard is miracles. Because there's a guy inside that tomb that was beaten near an inch of his life. He's in bad shape. And even after they beat him, then they nailed him through his hands and his feet to a cross. And he suffocated on the cross. And they even rammed a spear in his side. And then they wrapped him up as they did. But if it wasn't miraculous how he got out of there, and I'm not going to tell the whole story, so how did he get out? So he unwrapped, he figures out how to unwrap himself. And in the coolness of the tomb, he really wasn't dead, he was revived. And he rolls this huge stone out of the way that already had Caesar's seal on it, meaning if you break it, you die. And there's guards out there, and Roman guards are bad boys. And so this guy who could... How do you walk with holes in your hands and in your feet? And, oh, you got this spear hole in your side and your back at best looks like hamburger. And you may, you got where this crown of thorns been shoved on your head. And you walk out of there so you're in bad shape and you put a whooping on them Roman guards. I tell you what, this makes... Every supernatural movie you ever saw seemed more ridiculous than ever. There's no way you're right. That would take more of a miracle than God raising him from the dead. Either way, it had to be miraculous. So Jesus was raised from the dead, and guess what? When we're buried in a watery grave of baptism, we're raised from the dead out of that grave to not live the way we used to live, but to walk a new life. And so you think about that in Colossians 2, we've been buried to walk in newness of life. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27, it tells us that in baptism is where we put on Christ. You think about Acts twenty-two sixteen, 16, where it says, what are you waiting on? Get up. I'm paraphrasing or taking a very new language translation. Get up and be baptized and wash your sins away. Well, you know what I know? You can't wash something away that isn't there. So if your sins are already removed, you can't be baptized that way. Well, your sins weren't already removed because baptism is the only thing that removes sin. Because that's where you come in contact with the blood of the crucified Christ. So isn't it amazing that in John 3, 3 would say, unless one of born again of water and of spirit, he can't enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then later he says, you can't even see into the kingdom of heaven. You can't get into the redeemed family of God. You can't even be a Christian without being baptized for the forgiveness of sin. So you don't wear the mark of God's chosen children, just like the uncircumcised did not show the mark of the uncircumcised 
of God's chosen children in the Old Testament. And, of course, we already mentioned at least the point of 1 Peter 3.21. I don't know how it can be said plainer, baptism now saves you. And people say it's taken its context. I'll be glad to examine the context with you. It works both ways anyway. I don't even know how it can be said plainer. I don't know why people... Well, I do know why, but I, I can't understand how people get sucked into that being one of the things they're going to leave off. But I always think about this. You know, you've got to hear, believe, confess, repent, and be baptized. You know, to keep you in Satan's camp, all he's got to do is get you to leave one of those five off. Didn't make any difference which one. Now, why he chose baptism, I'm not sure. Because sometimes I think in the church, with these five, probably the one we leave off the most in practice is this one, repentance. We hear, we believe, we confess, and we're baptized, but we don't change much. Well, that you're just as lost as all those people out there who did repent but weren't baptized. You're in the same boat with them. It takes... The whole, I'm going to use this term, the whole recipe. And we could bring a recipe card up here of different things, you know. We could make them and we could just, one person leave one ingredient out, one person leave another ingredient out. We make five or six of them, I tell you what, no matter what ingredient you leave out, it won't be what the recipe called for. Some of them might even be edible and some of them won't even be edible. But it doesn't make any difference. It wasn't what the recipe called for it to be. Well, that plan of salvation is God's recipe to make a Christian. I don't know what you make if you leave one of them ingredients out, but I know what you don't make. You don't make a covenant child of God. And so he uses that, that circumcision made without hands would be that idea of baptism. And I think it's so interesting when he said he raised him from the dead. So just to kind of wrap all this up here real quick in these verses. So here was Jesus, Son of God in heaven, totally divine and with no, with no, no physical restriction because he wasn't physical. I mean, he had to learn obedience. So he comes to this earth. And it's still interesting to even think about. He comes as a baby, born like other humans were born. So first, his physical existence was totally dependent upon somebody else taking care of him. We don't talk about that very much. And then even after his birth, we find out when he fled to Egypt. But then we really don't run into much about him again in the Bible till about 12 years old. We find out somebody had been teaching him a lot by the time he's 12 years old. And then when he's 12 years old, we don't run into him again until he's about 30 years old. And then he's baptized and the Spirit comes down on him. So from the day he was born to that time, he wasn't able to work miracles. Because we can even read, as it will tell us, about the very first miracle that Jesus worked. That was when he, and I don't have time to cover this whole thing either, the changing of water into wine. Now, if the Bible says that was his first miracle, how many were before that? Kendall, are you stupid? If that's the first one, obviously there were none before it, or it would be the second, third, or fourth, or whatever one. 
It can only be the first one if none were before that. Because I've listened to a lot of religious people, even used some books of Jesus' miracles he worked when he was a child. You're kidding me. Do you know I can give you a verse in the Bible and you totally contradict the Bible? So God's a liar. Because that's his first miracle. So he became flesh and dwelled among us. So what's it take to be a child of God? To be a to become a Christian, the way the Bible teaches, and be circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by hearing, believing, confessing, repenting, and being baptized. And then you become one of God's redeemed children. And then you have to live according to it. And what's that mean in just a few words? You know that being that God-man in the flesh named Jesus, you got to be as much like him as you can. Do you know how you figure out how Jesus was and how you can become more like him? You got a book. Don't tell me what you think. Don't tell me what you feel. Don't tell me what you heard. Let's see what the book says. And that's what we've always got to get back to. So we're going to get ready to sing an invitation song, and I want you just to think and realize how great Jesus is, and there's none like him, or will there ever be. And there's no one and nothing that can answer your sin problem and take care of it. If you've never become a child of God by putting on Christ in baptism, you need to do that today. And if you're a Christian, but you haven't been living like one, if you've sinned in some way that you need to ask forgiveness, if you need the prayers to be stronger, if we can help you, please come as we stand and sing.